Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where each week we'll ask one of the speakers appearing at Hay 2021 to select their favourite moments from the Hay archive. To kick off our new series, we've invited Danny Dawling, Professor at the University of Oxford, whose distinguished work concerns issues of housing, health, employment, education and poverty, to make his personal selections from past festivals. I've been asked to pick three events at previous Hay Festivals. Two I was in the audience for and the third I wish I had been. The first should be an inspirational, thoughtful or entertaining event that you've seen at Hay. For me, this was seeing the geneticist Adam Rutherford show how a story should be told on stage by a scientist. Secondly, I was asked to select one of my most memorable events at Hay. Who was it with and what made it so special? This was the journalist Amal Rajan, skillfully getting a government minister to reveal a great deal about his character and self-impression, simply by letting him speak without too much interruption or obvious direction. And thirdly, a speaker from the Hay Archive that I would have liked to have interviewed. Given her fascinating work, her life story, her ability to speak brilliantly non-stop, this would be Jeanette Winterson. Adam Rutherford shows how to start off a talk at Hay. Be funny, but not too funny. Be confident, but not too confident. I watched this live and was just blown away by how well he did it. So I've selected a 10 minute and 10 second segment of Adam, the Book of Humans Sunday, 26th of May, 2019. The question of what it is that makes us human, a question which has obsessed the human mind for the whole of history, this, this idea that we are special and yet we are animals. And one of the things I do in all of my work is I, I really try to avoid um, uniqueness theories, is what we sometimes call them, but questions about or ideas that are, this is a one thing, this is the thing which has tripped us from being an earlier version of an ape into being the version that we recognize today, what we call behavioral modernity, all the things that we identify as being uniquely human. It turns out that many of them are not unique to humans. Some of the characteristics as we think as being definitionally human are far less unique than we once might have thought. What makes us human is having two human parents and having a human genome, which is a fantastically dull answer to the question of what makes us human, and of course tells us nothing about the human condition itself. So herein is the paradox of humankind. It is that we are special, we are capable of doing this, and all of the wonderful things that we celebrate in humanity, and yet since Darwin, we know that we are merely another branch on the tree of life. We have the same DNA, the same cell structure, the same proteins, and the same mechanism of evolution that every organism that has ever existed has, has had. So what is that thing? We are the most paradoxical creature and um, of great interest. And what this book is an exploration of exactly that question. Not necessarily giving answers, because I don't think science necessarily comes up with answers in the way that we sometimes think it does. Anyway... This idea is first seeded by my intellectual hero, Charles Darwin, in his second best book, um, The Descent of Man, which was published in 1871. Now, Darwin was a terrific writer, and it's really worth revisiting his works, particularly The Voyage of the Beagle, which is the most accessible book that he wrote. But he really was a, a, an astonishingly good stylist as, as a writer. And it is this, this phrase, this, uh, what I've got up on the slide here, 
um, which really captures this idea, this conundrum of, the human, of human existence. Uh, with his godlike intellect, which has penetrated into the movements of the solar system, with these exalted powers, man, and by extension in the 21st century, woman, still bears in our bodily frame the indelible stamp of our lowly origins. There it is. There's the summary of that idea. We are capable of great intellectual prowess, and yet at the same time, we carry the mark of our earlier evolution. Now, I say that Darwin was a terrific writer. This same idea, this is the first time it's expressed in scientific terms, but this same idea is expressed by a better writer than Darwin about 250 years earlier, which was this chap. Um, I think it's fair to say that Shakespeare was better than Darwin as a writer. Shakespeare wasn't a very good scientist, as far as I'm aware, so, you know, swings and roundabouts. But the great Hamlet soliloquy, uh, what a piece of work is a man, is, it's effectively saying the same thing. Look at how astonishing we are as creatures. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The paragon of animals is a gorgeous phrase, and I wanted to call this book the paragon of animals, and my editor said that was really pretentious. <laughs> and so here was the quote, the quote from the last book, the previous book, which, which again says the same idea, this paradox of how special we are, whether we're unique, and whether that separates us from uh, the rest of, of nature, the rest of the tree of life. The, the line that I'd wrote, written was, everyone is special, which is another way of saying that no one is. Who said that? Who said that? Someone shout it out. It's Dash from The Incredibles. <laughs> so in the first three pages of this book, I've got Darwin... Shakespeare, and Dash. <laughs> so, so there's the sort of setup for this, the exploration of this paradox, this paradoxical creature that we are, this wonderful paradoxical creature that we are. I want to give you a bit of background, so I will just cover the, in the next five minutes, cover the, the, the last million years of human evolution, because it gets us into the story of the, the, the important bit, which is the last 50,000 years. Um, so bear in mind that... The whole field of human evolution has been radically revolutionized in the last five years, ten years at a maximum, by the advent of DNA into the historical uh, source text. So the, our ability to understand DNA and understand the, the way that this simple code of letters of genetic code gets translated into a, into a lived life, well, that has just increased in, in sophistication by orders of magnitude in the last few years, as you would expect from science. But the second reason is that something really astonishing happened, which is that we managed to extract DNA from, uh, from the bones of people who'd been dead for hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of years. And so we're extracting genomes, this record of our behavior, of our, of our genetics, of our genes, of our sexual past, is recorded in these people who've been dead for hundreds of thousands of years, in some cases. And that gives us access to history, which previously could only be filled by looking at the bones themselves. So a new complementary text to sit alongside archaeology. This is the standard way that we represent uh, evolution, so it's, a, it's an evolutionary tree, and on the far left is a million years ago, and on the far right is, is us today. These are all in the genus Homo, uh, which we refer to as humans, of which there have been, depending on how you count them, 9, 10, or 11 different species of Homo. We are Homo sapiens, and we are the last remaining 
members of, this, of the genus Homo. So we are the last humans. And what you see here is that, well, the extant populations, the living populations today, which I've divided up roughly geographically, which is also the migratory pathways um, from which we emerge from African, from Africa. Homo sapiens is an African species. So Asians, Europeans, and Africans. We also know that there was an earlier migration out of Africa around 120,000 years ago of Homo sapiens, and they made it as far as Siberia, but none of them survived, and, and none of their descendants survived to this day. We refer to them as archaic modern humans. And you'll know of the Neanderthals. So the Neanderthals were primarily a European species, but the more we look, the more we find that they were also in Asia as, as well. Uh, and we divide them up into Eastern and Western as a result. Now, a few years ago, 2010, a, a fingerbone from the fifth phalanx of a teenage girl, so that's the little finger, this, this bone of the little finger, and a single tooth, a big molar, were found in a cave in Siberia, a cave called Denisova, which was named after a Russian eremite who was called Denis. So just a little bit of extra information for you there. <laughs> really not relevant. Um, a finger bone and a tooth is not enough anatomical remains to designate a new species. It's just not enough physical remains. But it was enough to extract the full genome out of that bone. So the DNA of this individual, a teenage girl, was extracted and sequenced in 2010 and 11. And it showed that it was different from Homo sapiens, and it was different from the Neanderthal genome, which had been extracted the year before. So we can't actually call the Denisovans, as we now refer to them, as a new species, but they almost certainly were. And until we have more physical remains, um, they remain a different type of, of human. So that's, that's the rough picture, except it's not the rough picture at all. Because we have DNA from Neanderthals and from the Denisovans and from us, we can tell something that you simply cannot tell from the bones alone. Genetics is fundamentally a record of all of your, your, the history of your, success, your, your sexual encounters in the past. Is this, are there children in the audience? <laughs> there are a few, aren't they? Yeah. Well, this is just biology, so you can ask your parents later. Um, we, we, talk about, we, talk, we, we talk about genetics as, uh, uh, with lots of euphemisms, which effectively refer to sex. Uh, we talk about gene flow events, okay? You know what a gene flow event is? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what the genomes of the... Comparing the genomes of Homo sapiens with Homo neanderthalensis with the Denisovans, what they showed unequivocally is that there have been multiple gene flow events between all of these individuals over the last 100,000 years. So we know, for example, that the Western Neanderthals had gene flow events with the people who had become Asians and Europeans, and we know that because... I, I can't see all of your faces, but the majority of you are, are primarily of European descent and, and light-skinned. All of you will have roughly 1% to 2% Neanderthal DNA. Okay? That's just a fact. Um, and so you carry the genetic legacy of Neanderthals, a species which went extinct 40,000 years ago uh, via a gene flow event. Now, we also know that the Western Neanderthals had a separate gene flow event with Europeans on a second occasion, and we know that the Eastern Neanderthals had a gene flow event, well, interbred with the archaic modern humans, because we have sequence of DNA from both of those two extinct humans, and we know that the Denisovans had gene flow events with Eastern Neanderthals. While you have up to 2% Neanderthal DNA, the further east you go, East Asians tend to have Denisovan DNA rather than Neanderthal DNA, because their ancestors had gene flow events with the Denisovans, and we also know that the Denisovans at gene flow events with Asians on separate occasions. So when we talk about the metaphor of a tree, an evolutionary tree, I'm not sure I'm happy with this as, a, as an accurate way of describing human evolution 
anymore because that isn't a tree. What is it? I, I don't know. It's a sort of tangled bush, which is a, a tangled bank is a Darwinian phrase. Um, there, there, there is a phrase I use in the last book which I found useful, uh, which is that it, uh, well, the last million years of human evolution is basically one large clusterfuck. Um, in contrast to Adam Rutherford, Amal Rajan shows us how to get a government minister to reveal a great deal about themselves without asking very much. The trick was very probably to have a beer with the minister before coming on stage and then to pour another pipe for the minister to bring on stage. The minister then reveals what he thinks about himself. This ranges from how he thought, as a child, that people worked for him, through to how he says he was influenced by one of the greatest minds in the world who, apparently, taught him, to his family becoming what he calls very comfortably off, and then how, by having a single chat at a party with George Osborne, he got a job running the numbers for the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and not long after ends up as a minister himself, less than two years after this interview he was in charge of the Department of Health at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. A 12 minute and two second segment of Matt Hancock talks to Amal Rajan on Saturday 26th of May 2018. So what did you want to do when you were 15? What was the sort of teenage Matt Hancock's great ambition? Uh, well, I wanted to go into business. And I was really interested in how you run a business. And the whole conversation around the dinner table was all about uh, the business. Uh, and uh, we were involved in or listening to these conversations all the time um, from my earliest memories. Um, and then, but there was a moment when I stopped and thought about the bigger picture. Um, and it's a, a moment that I remember very clearly because it, during the early 90s, when interest rates went to 15% and the economy was uh, in a mess, um, we got to a position where we had one big client who couldn't pay their bills. And I still remember this moment that we knew that if we got to the end of the week and they hadn't sent a check, I think it was a check for £4,000, um, if they hadn't sent their check by the end of the week, then the business was going bust. And the house was on the line, and both my mum and my stepdad worked in the business, so um, we employed about 20 people, and all their jobs would go as well. And at that moment, I, I, it was really, it was harrowing. How old were you? I think I was, um, I think I was 15. Uh, and um, the, we knew that, it, this was, that everything mattered. Uh, and everything was on this, uh, this check arriving. And I started to think then about how can you have a perfectly decent business that um, looks like it's going to be successful. And it had been going for f five or six years, so it wasn't like it was a complete startup. Uh, and something completely outside our control that to me felt very unjust was going to knock us over and we didn't know what would happen. Did you come under pressure from your parents to, I mean, you obviously had a very um, strong success uh, academically, a rare instance of someone who went to both Oxford and Cambridge. Did you come under pressure from your parents to do well at school so that you could relieve pressure on the household, which is the sort of thing that lots of immigrants, I suppose, could... No, I don't think I, no, I don't really, I, I don't think I felt that. I, did I come under pressure to, no, I'm, I'm quite a competitive person. Um, so I was always quite, academically competitive as well. 
And was Oxford a transformational time for you? Yes. Oh. Um, I lost my Cheshire accent. I thought you were going to say you lost something very different. <laughs> Which you may have done. I don't know why that thought crossed my mind. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, you hadn't crossed mine. So uh, <laughs> the um, no, so I lost my I, I lost my Cheshire accent. It, w- it was a chance to start again. Actually, um, it was a chance to um, uh, I met a completely new um, group of friends. Uh, the, just the opportunities were unbelievable. And coming from quite a provincial town, um, Chester's lovely. It's a great place to grow up. It's a great place to leave when you're 18 and go and do something. Uh, uh, with brighter lights and um, uh, 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 and look to the whole world, uh, and so I, 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 I relished it. I absolutely loved it, and I threw myself at everything. Uh, I jo- you know I joined every club going. I, uh, the, but the thing I made, but again, I didn't do politics at university either. Did you arrive a conservative? I think small C or yeah, PC? small C conservative. Yeah, but you didn't sign up to the Oxford University Conservative Association. No, I wasn't really interested, you know. Um, I was interested in. I ran the ball, my college ball. That was. Uh, we had a great time. Um, so I was the social secretary. In some ways, I'm, I was the social secretary of my college. I now feel like I'm the social secretary of the country. Um, and um, it's a. I, I did that. I, you know, I had fun. I went on the radio sh- the station. There was a little radio station. I, I think more people made the radio than listened to it. Uh, and I became the minority sports correspondent, which is a position I held with great pride. I thought you were going to say I became the minorities correspondent, which I don't think you're qualified to do. Um, were you sort of who, who are your big sort of intellectual influences at Oxford? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um, I, my definitely one of them was um, uh, my economics professor, a guy called Mark Williams, uh, a great expert in competition law, as it happens, but. Actually, what he was really, really good at was explaining complex thoughts in a simple way. Um, I, 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 I then went and did a master's at Cambridge where I was, um, most of it was a complete waste of time because it assumed that people behave rationally and then there were loads of equations about what that then would mean for the world. This was called economics. It was complete rubbish because it, in assuming rationality on line one of an economics course, uh, the rest of it becomes essentially meaningless. Um, but but in that, when I was at Cambridge, I was taught by Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winner development. And, uh, de- in development economics, uh, which was actually based on observation of the real world and how do you um, spread prosperity. And as somebody who I believe very strongly in the, in, in the power of um, people's initiative and ultimately for business to, uh, to cause, uh, to, uh, to generate prosperity, um, partly because I've seen it for myself from my upbringing um, and partly because the evidence around the world is so powerful. And then to have this chance over a series of, over a, over a year, to have a series of conversations with one of the greatest minds in the thinking about how you make that sort of insight work uh, in the poorest places in the world rather than in a, in a country that's got a long history of the rule of law and effect, if, if reasonably effective working markets. Uh, that was really intellectually stimulating. Were you back, so you came from a sort of um, provincial small business family. You had this transformational experience at Oxford. Were you tempted to go into the city and make a huge amount of money? Yeah. But you know what? Um, I was more interested in what was interesting. Um, I interviewed for a few places in the city. Like where? Oh, I can't remember. Did you fail your interviews? Yeah, some of them, yeah. Who rejected you from jobs? Uh, McKinsey. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very glad about that. Um, 
Um, and, um, but by then, I, you know, I had another formative experience, which was that by then, between this near collapse when I was about 14 or 15 and going to Oxford, um, and actually it was dur during Ox whilst I was at Oxford, um, there was, the company came good and started to really fly. And they invented the internet, which was absolutely fantastic if you're running a software business. Not your family's company. No, we really? didn't invent the internet. No, the, um, uh, that's some, some other politician claims his credit for that, doesn't, don't they? The, um, no, the, the internet kind of happened, and the, and the business took off. And the lesson I learned from the business taking off was actually that, um, that uh, although it's absolutely wonderful, ultimately money doesn't buy you happiness. So, the, so I went through this roller coaster of the business nearly going bust, and then my and then my family becoming very comfortably off, um, and um, and and the result it had on me was not to make me want to go into the business. The result was to say, how does the whole world work? Why does the system knock a company over? And that and, and that attracted me to go to the Bank of England, which is ultimately responsible for a large part of the economy and making, making the economy work. And when I was there, I then realised that actually the big decisions had taken in, in politics. When did you first meet George Osborne? I met him at a Christmas party. Was it love at first sight? <laughs> um, uh, we, we, it, it was interesting. We had a very... Uh, I was on... You didn't deny. That's a non-denial. No, oh, OK. You didn't deny that you were infatuated <laughs> I, with George I, Osborne I, from I, the start. I, but what was he doing when you met him? such a grilling... Um, he was standing in the corner with a glass of uh, Pims. No, no, no. But what was he doing with his life? <laughs> what was he um, doing with his he life? Was he was shadow... No, he was shadow um, chief secretary to the treasury. We were, it was at a party. I was organising a, um, a, a trip to the North Pole and, and training for a trip to the North Pole. And we talked a lot about that. And, and we also talked... He had this policy of um, ha making the Office for National Statistics independent, something ironically that these days we take completely for granted, um, that our statistics should be independent. And at the time, they were, it was run by the Treasury. And um, he asked me about this, uh, this policy, and we talked about going to the North Pole. Um, and um, I didn't really think much more of it. See, what sort of emerges is, I think, as I was at the beginning, I think you've got a public profile that suggests that you're ambitious, young, modernising Tory with a clear path to the top, really. And you're now in the cabinet, you've got a seat around the cabinet at the age of 39. But really, what you're describing is someone who's quite an accidental politician and someone who didn't really have it plotted out as Michael Heseltine did. Had you not met Osborne then, when you were at this party together, would you now be uh, an economist at the Bank of England? No, uh, because I'd already decided to leave. Damn, there goes my theory. But okay. I'm I might well not be in politics and certainly wouldn't have had the extraordinary experience at the heart of the Cameron, uh, Cameron and Osborne time and then uh, where I am now. Because so much of politics is about being lucky with timing, yes. isn't it? The, 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 the two things happened around that time. The first was the luck of being introduced to George Osborne, when, uh, which meant that um, when he was then made Shadow Chancellor, at the age of 33, totally extraordinary now, uh, at the age of 33, and what happened was that he phoned me the next day and he said... Um, Based on that one chat at the party? Yeah, yeah. God, your North Pole chat must be really good. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, and I was supposed to be in the North Pole, so he, my phone wouldn't, he wouldn't have cricket got hold thing. of me. He really wants to tell you that uh, he played the most northern game of cricket ever. Not anymore. Play, 
No. no. Did you hear? Somebody beat my record. Oh, my God. Outrage. That's literally your one claim. No, it's worse than that. that, We can come back to that. But what happened with was that he phoned me up and he said, I can do the politics, but I need somebody to run the numbers. And um, if you, I'll, I'll teach you politics, you teach me economics, and, uh, and we'll see how it goes. Did you feel, though, that you were at a moment in British history where you were at the start of a modernising project? Yes. Which had the kind of intellectual excitement. I mean, lots has been written, lots of books have been written. I think of Andrew Rawnsley's Servant to the People about the kind of intellectual excitement of the 1994 to 97 Blair years. Yes. Did you feel you were starting to join? I mean, if you're honest, because obviously we know how history panned out. Yes. But did you feel that you were a fellow rider in a plot to make the country more conservative and that in George Osborne and David Cameron, you actually had found people that could take power eventually? Oh, I don't, I'm not sure it, would, it, was, it was a plot to make the country more conservative. Um, it was that... But get into I, government is what I mean. Yes, get into... I felt a very, very strong... the conservative parties. That means the same thing. Um, I, I felt... Uh, and run the country according to uh, good, m- moderate, centrist, uh, progressive, conservative principles. Um, I, I felt very strongly we were part of a gang who were doing that. And... I felt a, a very good fortune to be in it um, and um, to be uh, uh, at the heart of it because I believe in it very strongly. I believe that the country is a better place when it is run by a centrist, moderate, centre-right uh, party. I, mean, that's, I, I believe that to my core because you have to be both um, uh, compassionate and very, very fundamentally believing in the power of government to do, uh, to go, to do good and the importance of... Uh, public services, which ultimately um, are an underpinning of a civilised society, but you also have to very strongly believe in the power of people to come together and make the, better, the world a better place without state intervention, whether that's in business or through, in charities or, uh, or, or just um, socially. And I think that, that I, I, I do think that's important, and I think it's, that's basically what, what happened. What did, you, what did you learn from George Osborne? Um, well, I learned a huge amount. Um, I learned how to um, I learned how to tell a different story so that if you don't quite like the question, you can move on and say something interesting uh, uh, over here, so that we can um, like, for instance, the North Pole story I was telling you about earlier. Maybe no, we should I, I come back that. to that now. No, no, no. What did you learn from George Osborne? I'm going to ask you about his failings in a minute. What did you learn from George Osborne? What's the most useful thing that he imparted? Because George Osborne is someone I know, obviously, um, is you know he's now a journalist. Um, is someone who's talked of often as a sort of chief executive to Cameron's uh, chairman. Um, and if you meet him, he's a, he's a very particular kind of personality. Um, yet he's no longer in politics, you are. What did you, as this guy who meets uh, a young shadow chancellor, he's 33, at a party, he rings you up the next day, says, come work for me, Matt. Very soon he's chancellor of the Exchequer. What did you actually most learn from him? I learned always to ask the big picture question. One talk I did not see because I've been speaking at Hay with my friend Carly the weekend before, and I never stayed more than a couple of nights, but I wish I had, was the 2016 Raymond Williams lecture on Shakespeare 400, and in particular, a 12-minute and 24-second section from the lecturer, Jeanette Winterson, given on Saturday, 4th of June, 2016. But this time, he was thinking about whether or not time can be reversed, whether you do get second chances, whether if something is entirely in your head, you could revisit that place, you could go to where the pain is, to where the wound is, to where the destruction is. 
And could you change it? Could you make it right? Would there be another chance? Would there be a second chance? And time in the winter's tale is not just an element, it's certainly not a clock. Time is a player, and literally, because the winter's tale, something else happens, right? In the beginning, of writing plays for the Elizabethan stage, there were not any intervals, there just weren't, because you couldn't have any. Right, the globe was open to the elements, you had to run through the thing in two hours and get home. It was important you did that. Then, they started putting roofs on theatres. The first one was at Blackfriars. This was a great thing, because they realised that you could, in, in effect, have the world's first advertising break which is an interval, and you could sell stuff. And because Shakespeare had a share in all the theatres, he wanted to sell stuff. So he thought, OK, this is a merchandising opportunity. We can put intervals in. So even though The Winter's Tale was on at the Globe, he decided he would put an interval in. And in that interval, right, so you've got all that crazy action of the first half. There's Polixenes. Say, look, my wife's shagging my best friend. Hey, where's my servant? You go and poison my best friend. Let's humiliate my wife. She's pregnant. You know, it just so happens that his best friend's been there for nine months. So you know, maybe you can, you can see where the logic is. He humiliates her, she gives birth, she's dragged off to prison, it looks like she's dead. And at the same time, his only son dies too. So it's absolute carnage. And we go off, and when we come back, time is standing on the stage, like me. There's nothing else there, because they had no sets. So time is standing on the stage, and so that we know it's time, he's holding an hourglass, because Elizabeth and Jacobean drama, they loved a symbol. So if time's there with the hourglass, everybody says, oh, look, there's time on the stage. And time says, while you were out for 20 minutes, actually 16 years have passed, and something very extraordinary has happened. Because Leontes' wife, Hermione, has given birth in this kangaroo court set up to humiliate and shame her. She's given birth. There's a child. And her closest friend, Paulina, takes this child up, and she says, look, Leo, it's yours. And he says, just throw it on the fire. Cover it in boiling oil. I'm going to dash its brains out on the ground. Nice guy. He says, I'm not going to raise another man's bastard. But she persuades him to take up the child and have it removed, as he says, to some far-off place where kites, ravens, wolves and bears couldn't look after it. And so the baby gets carried off on a ship to this strange island, which is Bohemia, which, as you know, is part of the Czech Republic, has never had a sea coast. But <laughs> Shakespeare didn't do geography. So we've seen, we've seen the carnage, the humiliation, we've seen the babe picked up, carried to the sea coast of Bohemia, and then the whole reason why we're here has happened, because before we came to the theatre tonight, we saw somebody was tweeting that there's going to be a bear in this show, and everybody loves a bear. And there's Shakespeare's most famous stage direction, exit pursued by a bear. Of course, there was no bear, but he just thought he could get the punters in if he said there was a bear. Uh, just, just showmanship and chutzpah. Anyway, so we come back in, we think, oh, God, the bear, the bear has eaten the messenger with the baby. The baby's lying on the ground. It's all a disaster. It's just going to get worse. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. But it doesn't, because time's standing there saying, OK, 16 years have passed, and remember that baby... She didn't get eaten by the bear. She got picked up by a shepherd and his son, the clown. And they weren't looking for her passport or her immigration papers. They weren't saying, turn the boat round and go back, will you, to Turkey. They said, 
this is a child. This child needs a home. We've got to take her in. We've got to look after her. They're just simple, ordinary people who want to do the right thing. And Shakespeare offsets this uh, against, against the wealth, the corruption, the cynicism of the court. Because for Shakespeare, ordinary people generally do want to do the right thing. And they're told by politicians and leaders what's not the right thing to do. But here's a baby who needs a home. So they scoop the baby up. And now we see that things might change. But this is interesting, this 16 years, because life expectancy in Elizabethan Jacobean England is really only into the 50s. You don't live past 50. So when you're talking about 16 years, you're talking about a third of somebody's life. That's what it meant to the audience coming to watch this play. So it's a serious and significant investment of time. And one of the things Shakespeare starts looking at in the late plays is how quickly, how easily we destroy what we love, how we manage to break the world, break each other, lose everything. It's so quick, shoot somebody. It's so quick to walk out the door and not come back. It's so quick to blow the place up. And then what? How long? How long? How many years does it take to put right what's been damaged? Well, in this case, Shakespeare's saying 16, because Leontes is not going to have the luxury like Othello of just killing himself. You know, Othello smothers Desdemona, then stabs himself. It's the easy way out. It's actually the coward's way out. Leontes decides he's got to live with it. He chooses to live with what he's done, which is why we know he's not a complete waste of time. And for those 16 years, every day, he contemplates um, the enormity of his crimes and his loss. And then Shakespeare seems to be saying, well, actually, maybe you can reverse time. You know, it's like that Superman movie where Lois Lane's dead in the car and Superman finds her and just belts the universe so that he turns back and time does go backwards and suddenly the car's not crashed anymore and she's not dead. You know, it's the ending that we'd all want to happen. And in real life, we know it doesn't, but in the imaginative life, in the spiritual life, in the life of the soul, and you don't have to believe in God to believe that you've got a soul. We know what it means when we say she's soulless. We know what it means when we say he's sold his soul. We know what that is. But if you think there is a soul, then maybe you can go back to the place where the damage is done. Maybe you can mend the moment. And as Shakespeare says, that which is lost will be found, which is a great moment of hope, chance and possibility. These plays, these late plays, are full of forgiveness, just full of this redemptive, imaginative sense that things need not be over, that they can be salvaged. And this is where he'd reached at the end of a long writing career, at, towards the end of his life. Now, we all have talismanic texts that we carry with us and we want to work with, because we tell stories, we read stories, we can't help it, even the most prosaic and literal-minded of us will go into the street, meet somebody we know and say, you'll never guess what happened to me today, or wait till I tell you. you know, we're always telling micro-stories one to another. They lodge in us. But there are some stories, the ones that we've read, books, poems, things that we've seen at the theatre, that mean a great deal. And we do carry them forever. And for me, The Winter's Tale is something that I worked with really for 40 years. I first read it when I was 16, the same age as the baby that grows up, Perdita, and is not lost but is found. And I read that play when I've just been kicked out of my family, my adoptive family. And you know, if you're adopted, it's, it's gone wrong once and you're a little bit nervous. So 
if it goes wrong a second time, that doesn't feel good. And I've, I've been thrown out by my mother, my parents are very religious, um, for breaking one of the golden rules of our house, which was not just no sex, but no sex with your own sex. So that wasn't going to happen. And this is where, I mean, really Mrs. Winston has Shakespearean lines because when she was throwing me out, she said to me, Jeanette, why are you doing this to me? Because everything was personal to my mother. And I said, look, I can't tell you, but it makes me happy. And there was a long, long pause, you know, a whole stretch of time opening up before me. And I thought maybe we're going to talk to each other. And then she said, why be happy when you could be normal? <laughs> well, she was a violent philosopher. But I left on that, and I did, I did really spend years and years wondering if it was a true binary, like good, evil, black, white, not happy, normal, normal, happy, do I have to work with this? Um, answer was no, of course, it was completely false. Um, but it was an interesting question, and it was for me that day at 16, having to leave, having to choose, having to make my own way, living in a mini for a bit, just, you know, Realising that the safe place won't always save you and that you get to the borders of common sense and you have to cross over. You can't turn back because that is when you lose your soul. If you're too frightened and you can't leave the thing which is actually crushing you or killing you in some way, you must go. The problem is nobody ever tells you you don't immediately walk into the happy ending, that actually things often get worse at that point, not better. And you think, oh, you know, why did I do this? Why didn't I choose the option? You know, at least there'd be food on the table and somewhere to sleep at night. You know, I wouldn't be in a tent on the bowling green. But you have to go because there's more to it. There's more at stake. And actually the Elizabethans, Jacobins, they knew there was more at stake. Um, there can be a useful aspect to believing in a soul because you think, all right, the inconvenience is temporary, but what do I want to keep? What matters to me? Um, and always there's love. And that's what Shakespeare was working with, always, this sense of love. So when the Hogarth Shakespeare Company said, all right, we're going to do a, a huge extravaganza for the 400th anniversary of the death of Shakespeare, choose, choose a story from Shakespeare, turn it into something else. What's your cover version? And for me, it had to be the gap of time. But I've reversed the order a little bit because I thought, all right, you can't have King Leontes and King Polixenes, we'll all go mad. And we can't have a bunch of shepherds dancing round in the second part, making daisy trains and shearing sheep. Uh, it's just not going to work. So what I decided to do was take the drama of the abandoned child and put that at the front of the story and bring in the shepherd and the clown, who I call Shep and Chloe, and have them find the child, start there. And I thought, Bohemia, we can't go to Bohemia, because in Czechoslovakia, I don't want to set my book in Czechoslovakia. So I thought, all right, Bohemia, new Bohemia. Let's say that's New Orleans, a place like New Orleans, where there's music, because there's so many songs in the Winter's Tale. Let's go there. Um, let's make a story around that. And I thought, what is a king, then? If I can't have a king, what can I have? A king's an alpha male. He's someone who's powerful, who's used to getting his own way, who doesn't really listen to other people, got plenty of money, can buy people off, thinks he's invincible. I thought, who would that be in the modern world? And I thought, okay, I'll make him a banker. 
And I thought, I'll set it just around the crash because he needs to have some blow to his ego and also the world itself needs to disintegrate somewhat or at least start to wobble. So that's what I'll do. We'll start, we'll be in 2008 with a guy called Leo who runs a hedge fund and we'll make his best friend Zeno and we'll make him a video games designer. And he's going to be a bit softer and a bit more reflective. He's also going to be gay. Um, there's good precedent for that in the story because all we do know is that Leo and Zeno were brought up together. We don't know why, we don't know how. So I thought I'll shove them in a chilly English boarding school, um, both products of broken homes, and they'll have this friendship, which is also sexual for a little while, as it often is for many boys. But Leo is straight and just goes around shagging everything he can after that. Um, and Zeno is gay. But they have this still, this intense, strong friendship. But of course, Zeno knows how to be friends with women, and he's always been close to Leo's wife, and that's what sparks the jealousy. So that's how the story unfolds. But to begin with, we're going to be in Bohemia, in New Bohemia, and see what happens next. Danny will be appearing at Hay alongside Tim Jackson and Catherine Trebeck on Saturday the 5th of June at 3pm. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and you can hear thousands of other recordings over on the Hay Player on our website. <laughs>